0: This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the films of the 1980s have the best music scores? Two words, John Williams.
1: Once again, it's time for the 80s. In objective defense of the 80s, from a couple of idiots.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s podcasts. Welcome back to The Idiots, another objective episode. What are you doing over there? I'm having a stroke. Ah. Welcome back to The Idiots. Do you, another- want,
2: you want me to do the introduction? Yes. You're can struggling? you please?
0: Can you help me? I hope this all stays. Uh,
2: oh, yeah. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture and everything else from the 80s, from a couple of idiots. He's got a riff on it. My name is Ray, and with me, as always, is my co-host and good friend, Will. Hmm. I see.
0: You're saying "good friend" now only because you're riffing on. We're defending not only pop culture, anything else that has to do with the '80s. I figured we could update it a little bit. Ray's killing it. I thought killing oh, oh, it. No, yeah. Okay, uh, and I thought at first though you were trying to like imitate my voice. You're like, welcome back to another
2: episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what I was doing, but I could
0: have been subconsciously
2: doing it. It happens. All right.
0: In any case, today today we're going to be talking about 1980s film scores. And so in order to do that, we're joined again by Dr. Michael Bratt. You may remember he was with us on our world-famous 1980s synthesizer episode.
1: That was downloaded by literally a dozen of you. You know, actually... Ah, if, it's got a lot more than yeah, that. Yeah, actually, no, it was no. one of our
0: most listened to episodes at the time. Oh, that's crazy. No. <laughs> no, no, it was very good and very informative. And in fact, if you're into 1980s synthesizer music or synthesizers, you should go back and check it out. But today we're going to be talking about school, film scores from 1980s films. And as I zipper my sweater closed, you can hear that. Oh, it's one of those one of those things now. It's ASMR. Yes. It's already it's a thing. <laughs> <It's really laughs> It's Actually, like do it again. It's like it we're it Foley artists, like, oh. <laughs> 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 oh, right. When Mike, <laughs> Mike shows up, this is what happens, I right, guess. The whole thing just uh, falls apart. Uh, yeah. Falls so <laughs> today we're going to be talking about, uh, as I mentioned, f- scores. Film scores from 1980s films and everything tangential to that. But before that, we're going to talk about 80s news. So a few items, just a few to catch up on 80s news today. In no particular order, hey, Bill and Ted photos, set photos are out. Have you seen these? I have seen them. You have? Okay, cool. So there's three photos. Big, big uh, Bill and Ted fan. Um, There were three photos in particular, different scenes. One of them shows them in the phone booth traveling, you know, the time traveling phone booth, um, which is, you know, pivotal to all their journeys. So we imagine they're doing some time traveling. Another photo showed them, their children, uh, their two daughters, played by actresses who I don't know, I still haven't seen them in anything, but... um, uh, in, in, but the in, in that photo in particular, we Ray's going to have to help me with this. Maybe you would know too because you're pretty hip. In that photo is uh, don't tell my kids a contemporary artist. I, w- I wanted to say Kid Cootie, uh, but Ray corrected me. That is correct. It is not that. Okay, it is Cleveland's own Kid Cuddy. Cuddy, Kid Cuddy. Mm. Yeah. Huh. Why do they got to make it so
1: hard? These kids and their names and their cutties.
0: And, and in any case, it turns out he's playing himself, according to uh, R- Rolling Stone. Why? Why wouldn't he? Be? And if you're Kid
1: Cuddy, you're going to be playing himself. Somehow,
0: so I guess he's the equivalent of like Napoleon or Socrates in the first film. Is now a Kid
1: Cudi downgrade, mm. right? I mean, uh, you you want? I guess he's the Mozart. Socrates. He'd
0: be the Mozart, right? Was Mozart that was? Yeah, Mozart was the musician that was sure. kidnapped
1: in the first one. I'm, I mean, I'm going to go on a, out of limb and say that even though this movie is happening. 30 years or whatever after, you know, Bogus Journey, that that's going to be a good movie, I think. Uh yeah, I have hopes. The um the tone of it's got to be real positive, right? I mean, those other movies are super like happy go lucky. And yeah, they, I feel like if they keep that, then they'll probably it's got to feel like Bill and Ted.
0: Yeah, the second one was a little more twisted and uh Yeah, I,
1: I think I like the second one better. I know that that's kind of a controversial well, point. But. Not for
0: me. I do too. I know Ray mm,
1: didn't care I for it. I like the first one better. Yeah. I enjoy the second one. I just like the first one better. You don't like the twister with the Grim Reaper? I, I like it. I'm like also, uh, as a kid, I was a huge Faith No More fan. And Faith No More mm-hmm. is on the soundtrack. Uh, and the and school in the of film. music is the Faith No More School of Musicology.
0: That's right. And they're, they're in the film. And in um, the second one, I don't think they actually do any time travel. Really, do they? It's, it's probably minimal. I mean, they, they travel. But they travel to the places.
1: Um, I'm getting mixed up at the ending. Is the first one the one where at the end of The Bad Guy, they were like, no, we just took our time machine and went back and you know we got the thing that we needed to do to get the thing? That's the first one. In the yeah, that station? is the first one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I thought they pulled that same trick in the second one. Maybe they didn't. I don't think
2: so. Every good sequel is just the first movie made again. Hmm. Oh. Every good
0: sequel? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what about, what, about, what about Empire Strikes Back? It's just the same movie. See so, uh, how to get they have to get from the place to go to the thing. Yeah. They, they do the
1: stuff, object find things. I mean, if we're boiling it down to like they went to the thing to, to the, get the yeah, thing. Yeah. The hero's journey. Um, yeah. Is it even that? I mean, that's just it's, like it's not like they
2: went from comedy to drama.
1: No. Well that's true. but like at the end of Star Wars, the good guys win. At the end of Empire, I'd say like the bad guys win. Right. Outright.
0: Right, that created a whole trilogy. That right, that movie was credited largely with creating that that trilogy structure. As far as that, yeah, up, down, up. All right, wow. Hey, so the third photo in Bill
1: and Ted mm-hmm. is it features I William. Feel like we're wildly off track right now.
0: William Sadler as Death. Do you remember? Really,
1: Death? I love Williams. I love William Sadler, and right. I love him as Death. Yeah. I think he's great. He's wonderful in the TV show Wonderfalls. Oh, I don't know that one. Uh, it's one of my favorites.
0: And the great thing about William Sadler being Death is he could have makeup on and he could look the same essentially. He kind of does.
1: Yeah. Maybe yeah. a few more lines, but I mean, yeah. you're playing Death, whatever.
0: Right. And I thought it was neat in the picture, you could see behind him on a shelf is a Battleship game.
1: Ah, when they were playing Battleship. Yeah, yes, so, of so of course You, you sank my Battleship. Easter Why egg. Why does Death have a German accent? I don't know, but...
0: And uh, speaking with I mean, Entertainment Weekly, the director of the film said that regarding this, this uh, William Sadler photo... Uh, said that, quote, death was in the band in the second film. Probably was. Things d- didn't go all that well, but I'll leave it at that. Okay, another 80s news, Star Trek The Next Generation. Fans started in the 1980s. Ray is, I know we've talked about this before. I'm, a, I'm a Captain
2: Kirk from the original fan. I'm not a big... Uh, you don't
0: everything. have to have, it's After not that. like a, you know... I like the remakes. Binary
2: thing. What, you don't like the remix? I like the new, the new ones with
0: Chris oh, the- Pine.
1: Yeah. Oh the remakes. I think we actually yeah. ended up talking about this after the last episode, but I love Wrath of Khan. The I think Wrath of Khan is like the greatest Star Trek movie ever. And I mean, and that's a James T. Kirk one. Mm-hmm. Right. I know you're talking about the new the next generation. That's fine. Which is not new. Well it's maybe thirty years old. But um speaking of good movie scores, Wrath of Khan is a good movie score. But next generation's great. Picard, um, number two. Like, all of that stuff is it's good. Deanna Troy? So those folks got together
0: and, and for the holidays and shared a photo with most of the cast. Uh, there was a couple of folks missing, including uh, Patrick Stewart. Mm. But among those there at partying, uh, again, for some sort of holiday reunion, were Jonathan Frakes, Brett Spiner, Lavar Burton, Gates McFadden, Will Wheaton, and uh, Michael Dorn. Three of those folks—I'm uh, sorry, two of those folks, Frakes and, and Spiner and Marina Citrus, is returning— that's how you say her name, is returning, you know, she plays uh, Deanna Troy, are returning to uh, Star Trek Next Generation spinoff Picard, which airs on CBS Access starting on J- January 23rd,
1: 2020.
0: Mm. I'm excited for that. you excited for Picard? I'm excited for it. Did you see that? Were you a big enough Star Trek? Tr- so my older brother was a
1: big Next Generation fan, and yep. I'm sure he's really excited about it. It seems like it's done really well, and... I like the character, but I just don't have this sort of, like, attachment to it. You I'm, don't even have to ask me I know. what my opinion of that is. You're He's, just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Thumbs down. <laughs> yep.
0: All right, and the last thing I wanted to mention was uh, some sad news, but ties somewhat to our, uh, probably our discussion of 80s scores, is that uh, we, we learned that from the Hollywood Reporter that David Foster, mm. the prolific movie producer... Uh, of many films from the 80s, including John Carpenter's The Thing Died on Monday at 90 years old.
1: One of my top five movies of all time. Yes. Is The Thing. And maybe even The Score. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. If anyone yeah.
0: picked that as among their favorites, we'll find out. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. But uh, David Foster, in, in, in addition to uh, having produced The Thing in the 1980s, he also produced Caveman, Short Circuit, and its sequel, which were both in the 1980s.
1: And racist. <laughs> <laughs> We can talk about that some <laughs>
0: other. Talk about racist <laughs> films on a whole other yeah. episode.
2: We are not touching that, that one. one. Yeah,
0: with ten football. Don't know what you are talking about. Okay, um, and also he <laughs> produced the remake of the thing in, in two thousand and eleven, which I did
1: not see. I didn't get to see that either. Um, nothing. I, was, I didn't get to see it. I could have saw it in the past seven years or so. I just didn't. And I think maybe it was a re. Not a remake. I think it was a prequel. Uh,
2: it's a it's an exact remake of the same oh, is that movie. Right? Basically, I haven't well, watched it yet. So
1: but. if you remember in the thing, they had that Norwegian outpost. Yeah, you know that he keeps on calling them Swedes, and he's like, no, they're Norwegians. Right. It's those guys. Oh, is that the right? guys? The guys mm-hmm. with the dog.
0: Oh, so it is a prequel in the sense that they're it leads uh, they they right up to first, what happened. Right? Yeah, in the first movie,
1: kind of sort of. Yeah. Oh, did you see it? No. Of course I didn't see it. Yeah, it doesn't look very good. Because you know not to see trash.
0: Correct. We talked about this briefly on an episode where we learned um, that they used, they were set to use practical special effects, Mm -hmm. and then they decided to replace those with CGI. So they actually, and in the process, because you can see online that before and after, they look much worse. They stood to look like the original film, more like that vibe, and they failed.
1: They made a smart move, though, they're not trying to make a sequel, because that ending of the original thing, I think you can't top that ending. Well, You, you know, can't answer that question.
0: But in this day and age, don't you think you would, right? They'd just be like, oh, by the way. Blade Runner? Exactly.
1: Like, Blade Runner answered the question when it should have just left it. I still haven't seen that either. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I think Blade Runner 2049 is, is a really good movie. But <laughs> well, technically,
2: it's
0: a remake also, but... The uh, 2049 is a remake?
1: No, The Thing. Oh, oh the, for, the Thing that, from Another World. Right, yeah. that's a straight up. Yeah. Um, I have seen that movie, too. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I still think that Carpenter's thing is... Yes. Oh, it's better. The com.
2: Yes, because it was made in the 80s. Right. And everything made in the 80s is. is obviously better. Objectively it, better. Uh, that's his line, not mine.
0: Uh, in any case, Mr. Foster's family has asked for donations to be made to the Los Angeles Jewish home. Hmm. I just toss it on the ground there? That yeah. means it's the end of 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Ack. So... Let's talk about 1980s film scores. And because we have Professor Michael, Professor slash Doctor, what, what, what would you do? You, just, is it combine them together?
1: Uh, no. You're like, just yeah, doctor. Yeah, actually. Just uh, Doctor. No, it's, I don't know. No, Proctor. it's just a, pro, ooh, <laughs> Proctor Brat. You can call me that all you want. Uh, no, you can call me Mike. Um, Did I ever tell you that? There is a reason I don't, well, I'm not going to actually say it on the podcast, but there is a whole story <laughs> of why I don't like being called Doctor Brat. Is Brett. it the exact place to say it? Yeah, I don't think it is. Oh. No, it's just like I had this, I, I can do it without actually spoiling it. Yeah. Naming names. Uh, there was a professor that I was in school with um, in my master's. When you get your master's, you're generally treated with like a lot more respect. When you're an undergrad, you're kind of a peon, right? You can do oh. anything else. But I got, as a master's student in the same school, I got invited to a faculty meeting where everybody was calling this one professor um, by his first name. Uh-huh. And then they wanted me to talk to this professor afterwards. So I called him by his first name because I thought "When in oh. Rome. Oh, I see. And he pulled me aside and he said, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> to you I am Dr. So-and-so
0: Because you were an undergraduate at the time I,
1: Well, I was, I was an undergraduate at that institution And then I was a master student later Okay So I made the decision right then and there That if I ever got my doctorate mm-hmm. That I could be called by my first name Unless I'm working with that professor In which case <laughs> It's Dr. Brett I see Dr. Mr. Professor to you. Yeah, right. But okay. otherwise, it's Mike. I I don't really care. You
0: call me sir. So regarding movie scores, from the 1980s, there's okay. some observations I made. And I was going to say, you know, so you're, you're, you're the expert generally. You don't have to be the
1: expert on this. There's no pressure. No, no, just relax. Just take a breath. Would <laughs> you want me Make to, it noisy? to, to yeah. respond to it? Or I mean, I think, like, I, I'm going to look at it from the point of view of a composer, because that's what I am. So what I'm it. thinking about, yeah, mm. who is this guy? Why is he doing that? No, um, I mean, that's what my doctorate is, my PhD is in composition, and I feel like I I can look at it from a compositional point of view, which is maybe a point of view that your audience probably wouldn't have um, looking at it. we don't, because
0: we're two idiots. But there's a couple of observations that I made, and this is what I've prepared to talk about, and you could chime in and add your feelings or not. Okay, there's three things that I've observed about the 1980s, music scores as compared to prior decades, and maybe since. So you know, like their impact of the, on, on sense, right? And this is a layperson's perspective with you know minimal research. Okay, three things, and we're going to talk about two of them. But 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 the three things are one, the influence of John Williams, yeah, on movie scores.
1: It's hard not um, to get him. I mean, he's
0: the most prolific, probably the most prolific composer, film composer for the 1980s. I would say the
1: 800 pound gorilla. Yeah, not of, of all time. Gone.
0: In fact, actually, you know, having said that, here's a quick question for you. Over or under, has he won 50 or more Academy Award nominations or, oh, nominations is or over less that. than 50? 50 and over or less than 50? He's, he
1: is over that. I would say he's over. He's had over like 140 film scores, I want to say. He's had
0: 51 Academy Award nominations, second only to Walt Disney. Wow. And, you know, I, I guess he'll, he has the opportunity to surpass it,
1: I imagine. Just so universally beloved. Yeah. You know, like everybody loves John Williams. And had
0: 12 nominations alone in the 1980s for his films. And in fact, he won one. All right, here's another question. This is just a random thing. Can you guess what film he won an Academy Award for score? Do you know? It's
2: the horse movie, isn't it? The horse movie. I think The Color Purple.
0: Um, You're both wrong. <laughs> oh, in fact, I don't even have him has, having written The Color Purple or a
1: horse movie. He Actually, The Color Purple might be the one Steven Spielberg movie he didn't do. He yeah. did
2: He did the soundtrack for a horse movie. I, oh, I, I what's a horse movie? movie? It's about the
1: racehorse. What about Schindler's List?
0: Schindler's List? That, that was in the 90s.
1: Oh, it's got to be an 80s movie. Right, there's so many to choose from. Yeah. Is it Willow? It's not Willow. No, no. <laughs> I don't think it's Willow. <laughs>
0: No, he did. did he even score. do Willow? No, he didn't do Willow. I don't no, think no. He, even he did. did but there's horses in it. Horses no, it was it. E. T. the Extraterrestrial.
1: Yeah. Right. Um. So later on, I'll be playing some some film scores. But uh, like, I think the most influential film scores of all time, E. T. is on that list. Hmm. Not just for the 1980s, but like, period, it would be on that list. Um, and the 80s are full of those. Like Cinema Paradiso is another one of those. Uh, Chariots of Fire. Batman would be probably another one of those, and then with a bullet, I think Back to the Future.
0: See, now I th- I'm glad that you're doing the game for us later, and not us for you, because you may have easily named our favorites. Well, that's we what I was expecting.
1: That's what I was expecting to do. Yeah. So I, I on purpose didn't choose those films. Uh,
0: and, and just another couple of things about John Williams, and one of the things my understanding is, and just from listening and observing, and again doing some research and having a minimal knowledge of music composition, is his starting with Star Wars in the 1970s, he started introducing old uh, styles of film scoring that hadn't been used in in a while, and that were more like, um, you know, opera or ballet, this idea of leitmotif, for example, where for a long time we didn't have films that would have themes specifically for characters.
1: Uh, So what John Williams brought to it is a real sense of looking... um, Every composer that was writing for movies pretty much were looking to composers from different eras of music, so... Um, the 1940s and 30s, you can think about like people were thinking of the end of the Romantic era. There as it was a time where then film scores became a commodity that people would start selling. So more and more, oh, it was okay. more like pop-based music, jazz-based right. music, yeah, which just... went well with musicals in sort of the 1960s. But by the time right. Williams is rolling around, there's this idea that we're going to go back to sort of um, major Romantic music. And I think the the composer he really looks to is – Gustav Holst and the planets. Right. Right. And so Mars Bringer of War is one of the, is like Star Wars. That's what Star Wars sounds like. Right. And the idea of leitmotif comes from that, right? It comes from Wagner and opera and so forth.
0: and And he makes no secret that about his different classical influences where he'll actually take a piece of music and create a new piece of music that's similar enough that, and again, he makes no secret about the fact that this particular leitmotif or this, you know,
1: larger composition is straight out of. Right. And I think he used to get a lot of flack for that back in the 80s. But in, you know, nowadays, I think we look at that. He was able to do it and still kind of put his own spin on it. Right. Which makes him John Williams as right. opposed to, uh, you know, Ted warmed over. <laughs> <V. Scott Hulst. laughs> Ted, yeah.
0: Ted Williams. Ted Williams. <laughs> Maybe he
1: is Ted Williams. Who knows?
0: So you mentioned, maybe I'll squeeze this in here. Um, you mentioned in that Danny Elfman, and you mentioned John Williams, um, and two iconic composers, very different sounding from the 1980s. Every you know, And I, I think f- folks also have fun with this, that most of Danny Elfman's scores sound like this. Unter, 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 unter. Oh, you're going to do it because he's a Hummer? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that that right there could have been Beetlejuice. Yeah, It, it could have been uh, The Simpsons, maybe, or Tales <laughs> from the Crypt.
1: Yes, it could have been.
0: Almost maybe Batman. In any case, having said all that, I want to play a game with you guys. When I've got some pieces of music, I want to play for you. Okay? okay, sure. And this game is going to be Williams, Elfman, or Other. Oh! All right, now you might get the Other, So, but we're just going to say Other because it's a composer that's lesser known. So... Three pieces of music, one was composed by John Williams, one was composed by Danny Elfman, and one was composed by a different composer.
1: Well, it's funny that you say that about Danny Elfman really yeah. quick, because um, when I said Hummer, that's actual term for a film score who can't write music and hums the music. Oh. And Danny Elfman uh, was that.
2: That's what I Like, when he wrote the Batman
1: see. theme, he wrote it in an airplane... With a um, a tape recorder and literally was like, brruh, brruh, brruh,
0: brruh. and does he then bring it to a? Uh, and then he brings it to a guy and he's like, arrange it. it. I say, yeah. I was just thinking that every thing, every time I think of Danny Elfman, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Done. Okay, so here you go. This is either John Williams, Danny Elfman, or other. Okay, so here's the first piece of music, and I'll give you all three, so you can, fig- you can take your t- chance and then figure it out. You okay? talk this through. And these are all from 1980s films, of course, so that's the first piece.
1: Hmm, what do you think? They're uh, definitely John Williams. I'm could joking be. around. It could Williams. be, but I don't
0: think
2: it
1: is. It's not. He, I don't I remember. Think that might be the other. <laughs> I think it's other too. If yeah. I had to guess, I don't. Yeah. It doesn't sound Elfman-ish enough to mm, me. All yeah. right, well, it's here. It let's hear. It could be uh, Oingo Boingo. <laughs>
0: but okay, well, here's here's piece number two.
1: This is one of my five.
0: <laughs> Alright, so then you know what that one is
1: It's Midnight Run by Danny Elfman
0: Alright Then I will play the last piece of music I love that movie a, What an underrated movie
1: Sick. I almost picked this I know what this <laughs> is
0: We should get this
2: one Well, this sounds like John Williams It's not It's not? But which, what movie is it from? I don't
1: know. It's like Back to the Future type stuff. Hmm. So it's probably that guy. There's a certain heart. With, and for, by the way, this composer you never heard of ever again. It's Craig oh, Saffron. Fort- yeah, unfortunately. Um, and that music is the music from The Last Starfighter.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. Um, cool. Such a great movie. That was such a lot of heart. <laughs> They're bringing that back, by the way. Uh, The guy who did... Um, do you know... Um, I can't think of the name of the writer now. Uh, He wrote... The Last Starfighter? No. The, <laughs> <laughs> we, we had, there, there's a Hollywood writer who's, well, who's big news. He was on Rogue One. We had seen
0: um, um, we
1: talk, David Goyer?
2: Yeah, we talked Mackie about this not too long He's ago. A, we,
1: we did see the that. British guy who used to be the editor
0: of Wizard Magazine. The original guy who wrote it, whose name I don't remember offhand now, he had tweeted a
1: while ago that he was writing a script for a sequel. Oh, and um, and shared
0: concept art on Twitter
1: saying cats out of the bag. Do you know who the original director or the director of that movie is? Probably do. I didn't know this until I I was was looking it I don't recall a fan, no. It's it's Michael Myers. The guy who played Michael Myers is the director of The Last Starfighter. The guy who played Michael Myers. (laughs) Who is, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but. Michael Myers, the Halloween movies, Yeah. The murderer. The murderer of Halloween. He's in the new uh, Halloween too. It's the same dude. Um, he's the guy that directed The Last Starfighter. This sounds like a bunch of Dr. Mike nonsense. I think he's, I think he's
2: making things up now. Look it up.
0: How, how will I even know if... I guess I will have to look at this dude's credits to know. That uh, so obviously Nick the first Castle one... Nick Castle is the name of the director. Nick Castle is... Yeah, that's the guy. And he's the guy
1: who played Michael Myers mm-hmm. in the early films. Okay. The first Michael Myers. Cool. So that first one had to have been John Williams then.
0: The first one was John Williams. Wow. What movie was that? That is from the movie... Heartbeeps, a 1981 film starring mm. Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters as a couple of mm. robots. That's
1: right. Never seen it.
0: It's terrible. Never it's heard of uh, it. Oh, I have horrible
1: taste in movies, so I've actually seen that one now. And you like it? And it, you were like, oh, it's, it's John Wayne. You, you almost got it. You were like, but yeah. you chose those. You intentionally chose it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the, part of the reason I love Midnight Run is that um, besides the fact it's just a great score and like it really fits that movie really, really well, that sounds nothing like you think. Din- or identity uh, Elf yeah to uh, sound
0: no yeah it's not like any of others it's like other a films. year right
1: before Batman and yeah it's he could have his whole career could have gone in a completely different direction
0: right and then he's and he's already done Pee Wee by then yeah um, I think he's already done Beetlejuice which Oof, came out Pee Wee is another Batman. one of
1: those m-s- m-s- or uh, b-s- yeah b-s- oh, there you b-s- b-s-
0: go
2: if it
1: sounds
0: if
2: it sounds like you could hear it at a circus that makes it good right. Well,
0: and that makes it Danny
1: Elfman, and I think he's got the mono on his wall, right? He just looks at it and it's like, does it sound circusy enough? <laughs> just yeah, it's just a know. big circus tent <laughs> on <just> the wall. <laughs> Maybe
0: he has a clown that's just on, you know, working hourly, sitting there. See me, just see if this gets you out of your seat. starts juggling. Yeah, all right, I got it. All right, so that yeah, that was the three, and because of your knowledge, and of course, yeah, those are those are right. Um, So the other thing that comes out of the 80s that I think is big as far as its influence on uh, scores going forward, and certainly 80s, is the introduction of synthesizers. And, of course, we talked somewhat about that with you when you were last here. Sure. Um, But because the technology is getting to a point where it's easy for composers to use it, we have an influx of folks experimenting with it, like Wendy Carlos, who we talked about on the show last time uh, with you, John Carpenter, who's huge, who... People don't know he composes
1: a lot of his own, a lot uh, of his own music, um, course It's still, I think. Uh, well, he hasn't directed a movie in a long time. I think the last one was The Ward for I John Carpenter. Don't even know what that is. Um, it, with Amber Heard, it's it's all right. It's a it's a good movie for John Carpenter. But, um, actually, no, for John Carpenter movies, it's eighties movies. Those are his his uh, bread and butter. It really kind of goes all downhill for him after like memoirs of Invisible Man.
0: Like well, most, him.
1: Yeah, like most people, once you get past, the, past 80s, the 80s, it's just you know, it's all downhill. Like us, from our that. lives basically after the 80s that, was just like straight downhill. Yep, that's the thesis of the show. And
0: also you mentioned Chariots of Fire is another one, uh, Van, Vangelis. Who right, Vangelis, Vangelis, Tangerine
1: Dream would be another one of those, right? Um, I'm trying to think of like Risky Business. Yeah. Uh, their score for Risky Business is a little bit like I, that.
0: I think it's interesting that Chariots of Fire, you know, had Vangelis do the
1: synth score because Chariots of Fire is set in the 1920s. Right. But you never even really question that. It's like you, you see that and you're like, oh, that movie sounds great. The Natural, that's another one that has like a real big synthesis score.
0: Yeah, I didn't even to think it.
1: about that. Yeah. Um, but all those bells in the background and stuff is like, that's a mm. DX7. Hmm. So anyway, so
0: since, and the third thing that I was going to say that I, we won't talk about on this episode because it's a whole other episode to itself, that the 1980s with regard to soundtracks, let's say more generally, is this introduction of the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the soundtrack musical. You know, you've got your Footloose and your Flashdance where the score is largely just popular songs either composed for the film or that were, you know. Uh, you know, co opted for the film. A lot of them, though, are, you know, include songs that weren't hits until they were in these films or known otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think the 80s are going to have a hard time trying to be the king of soundtrack movies when Pulp Fiction uh, was in the 90s. Because, like, that movie for me is like that is the soundtrack movie. Hmm. We start thinking about like a film that you can't separate from the soundtrack. Dirty Dancing is super close, though. I mean, mm-hmm. everyth- everything on uh, Dirty Dancing. My wife still will hear a song on the radio, and she's like, oh, that makes me think of Dirty Dancing.
0: We <laughs> you have the 80s to think, as Ray always says. That's why you have that in the 90s is because, you know, you've had them break the or cre- create the mold.
1: Well, yeah,
2: we had to make it, and then they just used it. To, they didn't do it better. They just borrowed it. They just
1: borrowed it. But, yes, that's that's what I'm here to say. So really, yes. Pulp Fiction just borrowed it from Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing, without you know, f- without Dirty Dancing, Pulp Fiction would be nothing. Now you're getting right. it, right?
0: Anyway, so th- any other things that other than those two are those three big things, and I really really will only focus on those two that that uh, we can say I think of the eighties like,
1: hallmark of the movie music in the eighties. Yeah, either um, just I think uh, there's a real turn to make things super memorable, right? And uh, there I think is a real turn to nostalgia. And um, those – the fact that we're going back to like these big sort of romantic orchestral gestures and even things like Marvel movies today, you still see those and it's based in that sort of like that same model or mold that really was sort of solidified by John Williams, right? Hmm. And that's what I think everybody thinks of when they think of film music from the 80s. Um, and I tried hard to actually to find five movies that – had great film scores for their music that that weren't that because i figured everyone else would was going to do that yeah i also tried to avoid john williams all
0: right so hey let's get into your five and then you know i think it's a good moment to do that and we could talk about our
1: favorites too probably as it mm-hmm. <laughs> comes out of that. um all right well number five that i was going to pick number four was midnight run okay so that's no longer in the uh in the talk. Yeah, and like you said, it's memorable certainly in the very
0: least because well it's a great score and it, you know, very fitting of the film, uh, and it's memorable because it's so not Donny Danny Elfman. Right.
1: And I try to pick movies that I feel like you couldn't separate the movie from the music and you can't separate the music from the without thinking about that movie. Yeah. And I think that that film qualifies on that front, sure certainly. Um all right, so this is my number five. We'll see how quickly it takes you guys to get this. I'm sure you'll probably be chomping at the bit in this one. an 80s movie? Oh, yeah. I uh, I really thought you guys were going to be just like,
0: oh, it's this. This is what you said the last time you were on.
2: I'm just going to throw out a wild guess. Uh, St. Elmo's
1: Fire. It's not St. Elmo's Fire. Ooh. All right, so that is a John Carpenter score. Uh, that is this that is the theme from Escape from New York. Oh, son of a wow! Guy. Yeah, in fact, when Escape from L.A. came out in the nineties, I had never seen Escape from New York, mm-hmm. and I remember going to that theater. This is the before the internet when you could just like look up you know the theme on YouTube or whatever and see it. Somebody asked me to see that movie twice in a row, and I knew that it was a bad movie after I had saw it, saw it the night before. But I'm like, whatever, I'll see it again. It's got that great theme to it. Like mm-hmm. I remember thinking that back when I was a kid um yeah there is the escape from new york that movie like have you guys seen escape from new york oh sure like, with, obviously yeah okay <laughs> um so yeah one of the things i love about that movie is it's got the synthesizer score to it um that sort of post po- post-apocalyptic beat to it it's minimalist right which is like the production design is minimalist and futuristic um that music fits all of that thing and the cool thing about that is if you count out the phrasing of that theme um, you get five measures of phrase, which is super weird. Most times you get like two or three um, or four, if you want to group two together, but never five. And I think the reason if Carpenter, all of his film scores like that were done organically, he did them as like improvisations. And the fact that he just hears things sort of off is something I think is really great. And it adds to that little quirk of the movie is like, Everything is just a little bit off. It's a little bit dinner, different. It's a funhouse version of reality. And he's not. Uh, he, he didn't st- study music theory or
0: composition. no, no, anything.
1: So it's just like it came naturally to yep. him. And I think w- I always love it when that happens. Like um, Halloween does the same thing. Actually, Halloween's in five four. All right. Well, you guys are not going to get this one. I almost come I gar- on. I guarantee on. you that well, you number lose. three is the hardest. It might be one. Ray's favorite movie. I doubt it, but I super super doubt that. Um, although we'll find out.
2: I'm going to go to Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Okay. It's not, but but it's close. It is it is something like that. <laughs> nope. Don't know. All right. So this movie is a, uh, is a 1980 movie called Altered States. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And the composer is John Corleano, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer. You don't usually find Pulitzer Prize-winning composers scoring mo- motion pictures, but... Um, he only has three to his name and one of them is altered States. The wow. other one is the red. One of the other ones that won, uh, the Academy Award is the red violin, but this was nominated for an Academy Award. And part of the reason I love, um, this score is like, there's, have you guys seen altered States? I saw it shortly after it came out when it was first super psychedelic, <laughs> yeah. weird movie. Yes. Um, that is about something called genetic memory. Right. And, uh, it ends up being sort of a love story and, so the technique that Corleano uses, and there's something that modern composers called like, how organic is your music? Like they would, an example of that would be like theme and variation where you take a theme and you vary a little bit and you vary it a little bit more and you vary a little bit more and you do like 20 or 30 variations of it. And the 30th variation, if you played that against the theme would be something that sounds very different. Right. But you would still be able to tell that it has some sort of relationship with the first is what you're describing. Not organic. It is organic. That is organic. right. Like that is an example, one example of organic music, everything on this altered state soundtrack sounds like it came from something else. Right. And I'm, and there's I a see. love theme at the center of it. And my bet is that that was the theme that he used to make everything else. And what a better way to show the idea of like genetic memory hmm. than to have everything sort of related to evolve each other. Yeah. Evolve. Else, yeah. And it's a wild score that fits a wild mo- motion picture. And that's, um, you can't really separate the two. Like if you think about some of those like visuals and stuff from altered states, altered states is also about, um, deprivation tanks. Yeah. That where freaked you, me like, out as a child. To, yeah. Where this guy is trying to find out about himself by going through these psychedelic trips of these deprivation tanks. It's a great movie.
0: And I thought, you know, uh, as I got older and learn more about the deprivation tanks, because people would do it for some different types of therapy. That no, don't do that because you'll unleash the beast within you, right? You know,
1: didn't you see altered states, yeah, which is what happened now? You're going to turn into a monkey, right? Yeah, he's like he becomes primitive <laughs> man. <laughs> right, what else you got? All right, fine, I got two more. <laughs> these these other two are, are easy, I think. I don't know if you haven't seen the movie, maybe it's not easy. You well, you said that like, last
0: one was the, the hardest one, you thought, right? I thought
1: that last one, yeah. Okay. If you have not seen altered states, you would have so no idea if it's
0: between Midnight Run and that, be good,
1: yeah, okay. I feel like I'm recognizing the theme of it. This was nominated for an Academy Award.
0: I think we've heard enough to know we don't know. How am going guess Schindler's last. That was '94. I know, but I have no idea what it right, is, right. so I want to
1: guess something. All right, so um, mm-hmm. if you the reason why I like this score is it's really evocative. Like a lot of times in film scores, you have um, just speaking from experience. What little experience I've had with that. That you have a very short amount of time to sing something really fat or really meaningful or impactful. One of the easiest ways you can do that is with instrumentation, like w- what you're choosing to show your movie about. So, what you're hearing right there, you hear like a break drum, which you think military, okay. right? Okay. And then you think All the right. voices that you're hearing yep. are the Boys Choir of Harlem. Hmm. You think of any movie. Oh, is it Glory? And then, yes, Glory. Ah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, and that's why I love that score. Like, it's just. Um, that movie, if you want to watch me man cry really hard. <laughs> nope. Put on
2: Glory. That's one of my wife's favorite films. Yeah, there's like 15 gigantic stars in that movie.
1: Yeah. Well, it's yeah. where Denzel Washington got his Oscar, right? Mm-hmm. For I want to say supporting actor. It's like the I first African-American so. supporting actor. All right. This is the last <laughs> one. I know this one already. Great, great movie, great movie score. This uh, maybe my one of my favorite movies of all time.
0: This is Silverado. It's uh, I don't know how say his last name Bruce uh, Broden. Bro- 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 yeah, Bruce Broden, who also wrote the score for Young Sherlock Holmes, right? And something else in the eighties, I think.
1: That movie score came oh, out one week after uh, Back to the Future. He did um, the Monster Squad score too. Oh wow! I don't even remember that that music for that movie. But I don't either. I just Wolfman has Nards. That's that's, what I remember about. That's all. That's the important part. You learned it in case you ever had to fight a Wolfman. Well, yeah, you would need to know that. That's some. (laughs) That's some major (laughs) major stuff right there. Um, No, so I love that movie. I love that movie score. I feel like westerns uh, really lend themselves to uh, movies in that they're able to. really do something with that canvas, right? There's always something great that you can do with the picture and the themes of, like, honesty and loyalty and friendship. And all of that is encompassed in those four main characters in Silverado and how they sort of meet each other and the way that a score wraps around that movie um, really packages and sells the whole thing in a way that that movie couldn't do on its own. Um, Especially for being sort of like this, in the 80s, it was like this postmodern Western of, like, being after John Wayne and whatnot. Sort of a callback to sort of, like, the good old years of... Um, when Westerns were fun. And that movie is has a really big beating heart. Um, that I think Lawrence Kasdan hasn't done anything as good of that. Like the two best things he's done, pro- or three, is probably Raiders, um, Empire Strikes Back, and then Silverado.
0: Yeah. So um, what do you got, Ray? I got nothing. You, you had picked this out fa- a-
1: favorite scores?
0: Well,
2: I have my favorites, my yeah. favorite soundtracks.
0: Oh, I see. So should we hold ha- ah. any soundtracks? Not the music. You're talking about more like the uh, soundtrack musicals well, we talked about.
2: It's a weird, <clears throat> it's a weird combination of scores and soundtracks. Okay. okay. Because obviously, um, at number five, I have Back to the Future, which has a combination of both. Yes. Because mm-hmm, you get all the cool you know, music, but you also get mm-hmm. Huey. Right. And you
0: can't go wrong with Huey. Huey is in the movie. That's what I mean. Yeah. The Power, power of Love. love. You know, and, and Claudia Wells. I don't know if she shared this on the show or is when I met her. She said that um, she had told me when I interviewed her. Maybe again, it was before we were recording. That um, on set that day, when Huey Lewis was on set, Michael J. Fox was so excited that he was there, and she didn't know who he was, so she didn't understand why he was so giddy about this actor being there. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. And then when when he explained, she was like, "Oh, of course. Well, now you know, I know who Huey Lewis was. She just didn't." know who he looked like I suppose (laughs) yeah I mean Huey's on that so you, you gotta give him something that's one of the musicals that I was thinking too because for yeah. me it came down to music that I still hum around the house or I catch myself <laughs> scoring my regular life yeah I'm at Home Depot looking for something you know and I start doing the
1: theme for Back to the Future yeah a film like Altered States would never make that list right like, <laughs> no, you're not would never that. be humming Altered States no, I,
2: only, I only pick my favorites yeah, yeah. like uh, Prince's Batman soundtrack
1: yeah that thing's amazing Wait, so the soundtrack not the Aunt Danny Elfman so part not, it, but not no the Prince. actual
2: Prince songs from Batman. Yeah. That's when I first realized he was an amazing guitar player. Yeah, for sure. He's an amazing artist. He yeah.
0: really is. That's a I like that one a lot. That's a that's an interesting again hybrid where you've got a memorable score from Elfman and a memorable, mm-hmm. you know, I guess soundtrack, we'll say from Nakota yeah, better.
1: Yeah. In that movie, they're very different too. Like that's oh, yeah. what's interesting about that is they're, they're both coming on the same thing but they're super different.
0: Yep.
2: Yeah. And then I've got at number three the Conan the Barbarian soundtrack. Oh, wow, what a great I, one.
0: Oh. One
1: of my favorites. Yeah. I don't know who did that offhand. That's uh, Basil. Basil po- Polidorus.
2: Oh, okay. Who I met,
1: actually. Is I met right? Basil Polidorus once. Yeah. Did he mm-hmm. call you doctor? He uh, <laughs> I wasn't one, so he didn't oh. call me then at that <laughs> okay. point. So, yeah.
2: Well, yeah. I like that one a lot. Uh, number two, I got Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow, for the soundtrack, obviously. Right? For the soundtrack, yeah, obviously. That's good for soundtrack. all the songs. Every part of the movie, you can tie the songs with how, you know. That one goes, but my all-time number one f- favorite soundtrack is This Is Spinal Tap.
1: Oh, Whoa. this one goes to eleven. Not even thought yes. about that. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, because the drummer spontaneously combusts.
2: Every song on that album's hilarious and mm-hmm. awesome and fun. So. Yeah. Yes,
0: and musically done well.
1: Yeah, and
2: they
0: all had to write them. So yes, yeah. and play their own instruments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Michael mckean is a uh, national treasure. Mm-hmm. I actually had a black album at one point. <laughs> I regret not having it anymore. It could be none Blacker. Or yeah. What is it? <laughs> so I have a few, and you know, I realized, I, I think I thought we were doing three, and I picked four just to have a backup in case, depending on what you guys picked, and so it means I don't even have five. Um, but I struggled with this. If I were to do five, I probably would include some of the ones we mentioned already, like Silverado. Um, I can't
1: believe you picked The Last Starfighter and Midnight Run. Yeah. That blows my mind <laughs> right now. My mind is clear. I'm like, there's no way they're going to pick one of my yeah. five.
0: No, let alone like hey, one of my
1: offshoots and one of my. Five.
0: Those are good and important for some reason, and you know, and like part of the exercise was the fact that Last Starfighter is such a John Williams Star Wars even type theme that most people would probably think, isn't that one of the Star Wars? Yeah, it things? is. It
1: is a reheated Star Wars, but there's something about that movie and there's something about that score that is earnest, yeah, in oh, a yeah. way that the, sometimes John Williams isn't.
0: So speaking of earnest, among my top uh, four, three, four, or five. Includes One of my favorite comp- film composers, um, because of his earnestness, is sort of his uh, ability to get to the heart or core of a film, um, is Ennio Morricone. I'll oh, yeah, en- Ennio Morricone. Morricone. Um, in, in, you have tons of... He's, he's, he's composed, I think, five more than 500 films.
1: Some of my favorite movies of all time. It, m-
0: mine as well. And, and from the 80s, you've got a few to choose from, But um, and there's that interesting story that we chatted about on Facebook about how... He had, John Carpenter approached him to compose the music for The Thing. Yep. And John Carpenter, uh, in Ennio (laughs) Morricone...
1: could you make make a piece of music that's a little bit more like one of my my pieces of music? Ultimately, yes.
0: In Ennio Morricone knew that um, Carpenter was into synths, so he composed two scores, a synth one and an orchestral one. And John Carpenter focused on the synth one, scrapped the orchestra one, and said, yeah, make it more like what I would write. And Ennio Morricone supposedly said, why did you ask me to do this? If you if you wanted to. Yeah. And, and John Carpenter said, I was married to your music. Um, he literally got married to his wife with his music playing. Um, so Morricone, you know, took a, another shot at it. And ultimately the theme of the thing is Ennio Morricone's and everything else John Carpenter wrote with a friend of his. Um, but we know fast forward that the orchestral score wound up getting used for the hateful eight decades later,
1: decades later, which is another really great movie. I have a, I have a real hard time with Quentin Tarantino. I think what's, um, when you hear the hateful eight opening theme,
0: you can f- hear, I think how it may have been, uh, that used in the thing. It has that. So sort of still, you know, he does some musical tricks. I think that ratched up the anxiety, maybe even subconsciously where, where image you're seeing images on the screen that you shouldn't feel uncomfortable about, but you f- feel, you know, comfortable.
1: yeah, it feels dirty. There's something I like, so I can talk about the hateful eight because I, I really like that movie. I haven't seen one a time in Hollywood, but um, that movie is very inspired by the thing. Like just having a set group of people yes. in a snowy place, um, locked off from each other. And then the real enemy is each other. Mm-hmm. Like it's just uh it's really well done.
0: But of, of all those films, I wound up choosing the untouchables because okay. it's, I mean, and I guess you could say about his scores are most oftentimes they're different than others. I mean, yes. the spaghetti westerns obviously were composed to be similar
1: because they're you know about the same. If you have to pick one of all the scores, I mean, it has to be the Good, Bad, and the Ugly, right? Like that's of all. If time, when you I think suppose. about like Ennio Morricone scores, yep. that's the score that I think like is just dear God, <laughs> that is. What have you done? That's yes, just an amazing score.
0: If it had not been in the sixties, then yes. But I chose The Untouchables for that. <laughs> uh, among my other favorites. I also Back to the Future was one of mine for the reasons that I said before. I also included
1: Elmer Bernstein. Mm. Uh, for, uh, Ghostbusters? for Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, I'd like Ghostbusters score quite a bit, and <laughs> that new trailer uses a lot right. of uh, it's almost all like, oh, Elmer Bernstein. Bernstein. That, yeah,
0: is this another situation where we pronounce words differently? Um, what was the? I
1: could be wrong on this one. I'm not Wait, wrong on. Mo. I think it's Leonard <laughs> <Are> we, going- <laughs> Moog. Are we going
0: Moog. back to the Moog? Moog. I think it's Leonard Bernstein. Elmer Bernstein.
1: That could be.
0: Maybe he's a Bernstein.
1: I mean, he's part of the Bernstein Bears? <laughs> Maybe it's Mom one and of the Mandela and, effect. Yeah.
0: But mm-hmm. I really think Ghostbusters is amazing because it's memorable, a lot of the themes. But also he he is able to balance the comedy, you know, with this sort of more focusing on piano where we have these sort of lighter heart things. But then also use a piano for these more spookier moments and then these moments that are real orchestral and almost, you know, a lot of horns for these jump scares and stuff like that. He's able to navigate the comedy and the, I don't say horror is too strong, but the darker i think most easily.
1: most film scores will tell you that uh comedy is the hardest mm-hmm. of all the genres to score. You're doing horror, you know what your job is. Your job is to, you know, psychologically get under people's skins or to make something happen. Yeah. You do um some sort of like drama or some sort of movie where you're just sort of trying to manipulate the audience's emotions with comedy. It's so psychological and what's funny to one person's not necessarily funny to another. Yeah. And then not every film has enough underpinnings underneath the comedy to be able to do something with it. So
0: sure. I imagine it's easy to make it campy too. If right. you're
1: scoring the wrong moments, like how do you the score wrong... the music to the movie dodgeball or something like that would be very, that's a, that's a challenge <laughs> all of a sudden that <laughs> a lot you of wouldn't grazoos. get with like a uh, glory or something like that. It really lends itself to music. Yeah.
0: And I, what I didn't realize was he had composed a number of other films. Apparently, and I didn't go back and listen to it, but they say that one of the underrated compositions of the 1980s was his score for Airplane, of all things. Oh,
1: that's a good. That is a good score, by the way. I, I really I like the score for Airplane. Looks like I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing blue. <laughs> but, but he also did heavy
0: metal and Black Cauldron in the 1980s as well. Uh, in any case, and my final choice again, I think this amounts to four, is Wendy Carlos with Tron. Um, yeah, it's very different than at that point anything we had heard because it focuses so largely on synths, but. Um, she also has orchestral, uh, you know, she uses an orchestra, she uses voices. She um, was kind of the only person at that time that could do something like that that at that time. And I love, there's something about it that apart, if you listen to it apart from the film, it could be a ballet. Yeah. I mean, you could see, you know, we're talking about leitmotif earlier or, or about, you know, Mickey Mousing, but I don't know if you would use those phrases in connection with that. Well, leitmotif you would in a ballet, but not Mickey Mousing. But that said, Ballets are often, you know, uh, choreographed or were choreographed after the composer would say, here's your sure. piece of music. And you get that feeling like you could see dancers hitting certain moves with some of the different elements yeah. in their music.
1: Um, and just as a side note, too, it's really super awesome that uh, the transgender community has somebody mm-hmm. like Wendy Carlos as a uh, representative. Right. Because, especially so early on back when people weren't even thinking about those kinds of things. Because
0: right. like, if folks don't really, know. Wendy was born Walter, I think. Yeah. It was. Um, and has been composing for a number of years. Um, and again, some of the most... And as we talked on the synth episode, an early adopter of synthesizers
1: with their Moog uh, album. Yeah, Still right, agree, on me. Moog. Moog, right, Moog, Moog. Moog. All
0: right, anything else about this, fellas?
1: No, nah, let's stick a fork in it. We're done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you think we uh, did today, Ray? Uh,
2: I think we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt... That the soundtracks from the eighties, like, skeptical, are far superior to everything that
1: came after it. I feel a little dirty every time that gets said. <laughs> I feel like I've sold and, my soul somehow. Even better, objectively, than,
0: even then, better than Pulp Fiction or any of the other nineties, yeah, right. Yes. Whatever,
1: or The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which Let's came, throw well, that down under the bus. The, uh
2: The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was used by the Ramones in the eighties as their uh, intro song when they came on stage. Oh, it's, so it's good for them. So. You know, they took it and made it
0: better. So there you go. Uh So we'll talk to you next time on The idiots. See ya.